Carlos Sanchez is a principal scientist at Adobe, where he works on the Adobe Experience Manager. AEM is a content management system analogous to WordPress and provides a platform for site creation and content delivery. In addition to his work at Adobe, Carlos has a long history contributing to open source projects, including Apache Maven. He joins the show today to talk about his work at Adobe, open source, and more. This episode of Software Engineering Daily is hosted by Jordi Mon Companies. Check the show notes for more information on Jordi's work and where to find him. Hi, Carlos. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. So we are here to talk about your work at Adobe. You were recruited a few years ago already. How long have you been working in this project at Adobe? Yeah, over four years now, yeah. Okay. So, and of which you gave a talk at Open Source Summit Europe 2023 in Bilbao, Spain, where you and I met. And tell us about the product before we jump into what are you doing still there? Yeah, so, well, thank you for having me, of course. Adobe Experience Manager is the product I'm working on at Adobe. It's a content management system at its core. It has a lot of open source background, a lot of open source components. A lot of people are contributing back to open source. So that's how I got to know my teammates back from my background at the Apache Software Foundation. It's a very enterprisey content management system. It's very widely used. There's a lot of developers extending it. It's not maybe a lot, it's not very well known, I guess, compared to how used it is. It's very surprising. I, even when I joined Adobe, I wasn't aware of what was the, the exposure that the product had. So that's the core of Adobe Experience Manager. In a way, WordPress is the king of sort of like B2C, right? Individuals, small companies, and maybe AEM, Adobe Experience Manager, is more the enterprise king, right? I mean, it's probably, um, I don't have any data to support that claim, but the way I see it is that in a way that Adobe serves a different market. And it probably supports the idea that that market is not as sexy as, you know, as individuals or small startups, and, and therefore it doesn't get so much account. Before we get into the situation in which you, the project was when you joined, what open source projects were you contributing to in which you met, sort of like mingled with developers that were working in AEM before? What, what are the specific open source projects that AEM relies upon strongly? Yeah, I think my main contributions back in the day were to Apache Maven when it was starting, Maven 1, Maven 2. So it, it was a long, long time ago. And that's when I was most involved with uh, the Apache Software Foundation. And I met a bunch of other folks at different events, conferences, mailing lists, and so on. And the projects that were used regarding content management, there was back in the day, Jackrabbit and standardization of the Java APIs uh, for content management. All that was happening around 2005 or so. And from those projects that kind of evolved and the projects we use today from the ASF is Sling and uh, OSGI, projects related to OSGI, component management in Java, probably a bunch of others. Of course, Maven, it's almost ubiquitous everywhere in Java projects today. And that's when 
when I started back in 2004, 5, 4 or 3 on this open source world when I was still in university. And since then, I've been contributing to a bunch of other projects. Before joining Adobe, I was doing a lot of work on Jenkins. And that's also where I got more exposed to Kubernetes and Docker container technologies. It says a lot about your experience with Java, the fact that you consider Maven and Java different things or one part of the other. Because in my view, and I'm very little experienced in Java or in the Java ecosystem, for me, they are inseparable. Uh, Maven is a piece of technology of Java. And in a way, it has become that, right? But it was something different and separate and that has become part of it only because it's so relevant. But yeah, it's not part of the core technology, right? Yeah, it's, it's not. And, and I guess because I saw this baby getting born and there was a big battle back in the day, this Ant versus Maven, declarative versus imperative and this whole model. And there was a huge fight between each other on how people hated Maven or liked Ant or hated Ant and liked Maven and so on. Yeah. So tell us about your experience. What do you reckon was relevant to the Adobe people that hired you? What skills made you attractive to the goals that you will later explain that Adobe's leadership wanted to apply to AEM? What is it that you've learned through all this time? contribution to the Apache Foundation, but also getting involved in uh, Jenkins, as you said, or Hudson. That was its original name, right? Yeah. And uh, containers and uh, Docker in particular. Yeah. What are the skill sets that make you a, you know, important for Adobe right now? Yeah, I think it was containerization, Docker. I started in Docker fairly early. We were building a startup doing DevOps tooling back in 2009, 10, before it was sexy. We were working a lot with Docker, and then that moved on to Kubernetes very early on the Kubernetes project when it was really, really painful to use. That was kind of, I think it was, if you were to look at it again, it was very clear that containerization was going to be very successful. And once you went through the, okay, I'm running containers in one machine, how do I run containers in more than one machine? Things like Kubernetes and Mesos back then were the obvious next step. And that's how, when I started playing with Jenkins and Kubernetes. So coming from, okay, I have this hammer. How can I use it? <laughs> so I was uh, creating a Kubernetes plugin for Jenkins. So you could run your Jenkins builds. There was plugins for running them in VMs, cloud, uh, Docker, and so on. And I started the plugin that allow you to run the builds in Kubernetes. So that's how we started in the in this world. And and this was fairly early on the Kubernetes life. So that got me very interested and, and I guess with a bunch of lead time to learn and make mistakes and, and learn from them. You are truly a full stack developer because you're very experienced in the most widely used CI system. Maybe build system, CI, I would say Jenkins is more a CI system than a scheduler of sorts than a build system like Bazel or, or Pants or whatever. Then you extended it to be able to run jobs elsewhere than in your machine, right? That's why, I mean, you can use it with Kubernetes, right? To run those jobs remotely. And then you are very familiar with Maven, which is in a way the Java package manager. Is that a good way to call what Maven is? Yeah, package manager, build tool. Yeah, my background was started in Java. 
mostly. That's where my, I guess, work experience started and then kind of evolved into more operational matters. Okay, so you also manage the ops side. Because like, what I just described is mostly the dev side, the way in which one builds software, tests it, whether it's on its own machine or remotely, and then packages it. And that's where I think, in my view of the world, dev ends. It's like, here you are, there's your package. Operations people take it to the world and so forth. You've also become acquainted with that side, but let's call it the deployment side of things. I guess you become interested, and maybe this comes from working at the startups early and where you have to do everything. I was doing UI, I was doing JavaScript on the front end, I was doing everything that needed to be done, right? But yeah, I kind of evolved into a more DevOps role where, yes, I'm building something, but I also need to run it. And I want to see how to run it. I need to make sure that this is running fine. I need to deal with kernel, the Linux kernel. I need to deal with containers and so on. Would you say that apart from your own interest, your own training in computer science or not, or engineering or whatever, would you say that this has only been possible because of open source, your expertise in these fields? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, definitely. Open source has been a huge plus for me. And from getting involved and getting into a, like an international audience or group of people, that was all due to open source and participating on the ASF and Eclipse Foundation and other open source communities. Until now, the tools that we use on a day-to-day basis. How did you know that containerization was going to be such a huge thing? How did you know that Jenkins, even you haven't said so, but how did you get involved in such eventually successful products or projects rather? How did you have that sense of opportunity? Do Do you recall being there for a reason or was it just absolute sheer luck? Or was it a balance of both things? I guess it's it's easier to see in the <laughs> in hindsight, but I made bad decisions before. <laughs> yeah, I guess on the startup world where I was part of several startups in California, the first bet was big on Maven and continuous integration with with another project on the ASF called Continuum. That was too early. The CI tool is not even, I, I think it's still there, but nobody uses it or, or just a few people in the world use it. From then on, DevOps. Yes, we saw DevOps was a great idea, but it was too early again. It was 2009, 10. Nobody cared about DevOps. People would think that we were a bit crazy trying to, you know, push to bridge the both worlds. And at some point, I got lucky, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, containerization, I think it was, for me, it was a good idea from the very beginning. You go and you say, okay, this is good. This is going to help because we've been through VMs before. We've been through VMs before. We've been through cloud before that. I heard people saying cloud is never going to take off. Same as you would hear people saying the iPhone is never going to take off because people want keyboards, right? And you saw that. You think, no, nah, this is good. And containerization was obviously good because allow you to do more things simpler, faster. And then I think the step from containerization to like a cluster type of Kubernetes was obvious. The only 
concern is which technology is going to win. You have Mesos, you have Kubernetes, then you have Docker Swarm. It's not a matter of if the technology is going to succeed, it's a matter of which project is going to do it. Yeah. Did you know that Kubernetes was going to be, or were you just lucky to be involved in it? Because you said it was really painful, and it still is, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was really, really painful. And I mean, when I started working with it, it was basically, you, uh, something is broken. I'll just delete everything and start from scratch again, because I don't know how to fix it. And it's also depending on the skill sets early on, Kubernetes. It, I mean, Kubernetes itself, and even today, is more of an maybe ops, especially early on, was more of an ops project that you needed to know about memory, kernels, C groups, this and that. So that was more challenging for somebody like me. But when I joined CloudBees, CloudBees was a company I was working on before joining Adobe. We were building a CloudBees enterprise solution built on top of containers. And the first choice when I joined, people decided it was going to be Mesos. And then after that, we built the Kubernetes version. And I think that's the one that is stick, right? But yeah, early on, people were betting on Mesos a lot because it was the more mature technology. Mesos had been around for years. It had very good, sizable deployment base, cluster sizes, and so on. So I, I don't see that as a mistake, but it's more of a learning curve where you say, okay, there's a technology that is mature today that is called Mesos. There's a technology that is very promising, but it's not kind of ready today, which is Kubernetes. So then it's a more of a business decision or where do you want to start? Was Kubernetes in that stage built on Go only, on Go programming language? I think it was. And was yeah. that not that a problem for you? Or actually, was it an opportunity to learn about Go? You didn't require to know be completely? No, I didn't need to. I was not contributing to it. I was just trying to use it and build things on top of it. So I remember that it was built, the deployment scripts were shell scripts and salt. So this was like a puppet thing, but different. And so there was all this, because back in the day, for people that are old enough, they will remember there was things like puppet, salt, and there was another one that I forgot. But basically how to deploy or reinstall packages across a fleet of machines. And that's another technology that kind of went away today. Is that Chef? Were you thinking about Chef? Chef, yes, exactly, Chef. Yeah. Well, Chef is still used by Facebook and others. But yeah, yeah, I think in a way they're dwindling. I don't know. I wish the best to those projects and those communities. I don't, don't get me wrong. Maybe this the curve of maybe they're now in the plateau of People are using it, it's fine, it's great, and there's no big fuss about it. Correct, yeah. Like many other technologies out there that we don't... OpenStack, always, I get reminded every now and then that it's strongly used, it's not growing, but most of the user base is really happy with it. So if you find a solution to your problem with OpenStack, just go ahead and you surely will do with uh, Chef and, and Puppet and others and, and Stack, yeah. So tell us about AEM then. So when you got hired there... What problem, what situation did you join? What was the main goal of the project or goals of the project and your charter? Yeah, when I joined Adobe, the project was building a cloud service out of AM. So there was, AM had been widely used for many years on-premise, managed services, 
people would run it on their data centers across multiple nodes. It was already being distributed in the sense that you could have multiple machines delivering this content. And the challenge was, how do we run this for customers? How do we run this on the cloud for them so they don't have to worry about operational stability, performance, things like that? How can we make it like a SaaS product that they don't have to worry about and they can just simplify their usage? Was the cloud provider for that project already chosen or was it part of your charge yes. to pick? Okay. Okay. Yeah, the project was already started and the technology chosen was Kubernetes. We run Kubernetes. We have now probably close to 40 Kubernetes clusters in the world that we run AM on. There's some interesting challenges here because being a content management system, you want the content to be close to your customers. So we run across the whole world. We have multiple regions. We add regions as soon as they are available, sometimes working in combination with the cloud provider to say, you know, they tell us we're preparing this region and we tell them, you know, we need all this capacity in that region as soon as it's ready to go. Same thing with like ARM nodes running on ARM CPUs. That's one of the latest projects we've been working on. But yeah, it's the scale and how to... I think that's one of the benefits of Kubernetes is the how easy it is to do a lift and shift to cloud or to Kubernetes containers, taking something that is already running and putting it in containers and just run it in the cloud. So how did that go then? Because I'm sure that when you joined... It was not running on Kubernetes. So what changes do you started taking into fruition? Yeah, when I joined the project, it was already going and Kubernetes was being used. It was not live yet. It was one year after I joined that the project was live on GA. So the challenge is how to yeah, grow in the number of customers, how to deal with multiple clusters across the whole world is also a good challenge because with Kubernetes, there's some, I think there's two trends. There's people trying to do very big clusters, like people claiming 5,000 nodes or 7,000 nodes or something like that. And on the other hand, I think it's becoming more popular to, okay, we don't want to deal with the scale issues in one cluster. So we just run, how can I easily run tens of clusters of hundreds clusters or something like that. And this allows you to not have to spend so much time on getting ready to scale. And it also limits the, the surface of problems, the blast radius. If one cluster goes down, what happens, you know? And then a lot of people are focusing on how can I manage multiple clusters easily instead of trying to do one very big one. How does that work? How do you manage a myriad of clusters as opposed to a huge one? What are the intrinsic problems of, to, of that of a huge fleet? Yeah, we deal with them. So we try to use them as cattle, not as pets type of thing. But still, that's not trivial. We still have some dependencies that we would like to get rid of on specific clusters. But the whole premise is... When we think we reach the limit of one cluster in one region, we create a new one. We start onboarding customer environments on that one. The old one is static, kind of. Well, it's not static in the sense 
because we use auto scaling, so we still deploy uh, operators and and other things, but we kind of limit the growth on specific clusters when when we think it's close to its uh, peak, and then we kind of follow a templating pattern where it's very easy for us to add new clusters. We just take the templates and apply them to the new clusters. And we have like a queue of clusters that we can onboard customers in. What do you mean by a template? I mean, is this sort of like a GitOps declarative definition of what a cluster yes. looks like? Is it in a YAML format, in a data yes. format? Is it stored in Git? And you use something to look that up and spin up the cluster and avoid any type of drift from its origin, from the declared state? How does that work? Can you explain the template feature? Yeah, so we have a set of operators that we need to run on each cluster. When we get a new cluster, we create those operators. So then this is all GitOps. Uh, the definitions are in Git. We just have to create a new namespace in the new cluster. And those get automatically provisioned from Git. And then the cluster is ready for onboarding of customers' environments. One specific thing that we do at Adobe, we have a team, which is kind of a platform team that creates the clusters for us. So that has its pros and its cons, hopefully more pros than cons, (laughs) where they build the clusters for us. They have a lot of expertise on Kubernetes. They create, they go get the VMs from the provider and they build the whole cluster for us. And they also run it and they're on call for the kind of the cluster layer. And we take that cluster and then we start installing operators and other things on top. So how did the release process look like when you landed there, even before, like for the pre-cloud AEM? And how does it look like now? What are the main differences in release cycle, maybe team topologies? Like, did that platform team exist before? Or was it charted differently? So how did it look like before? Was the release a day? Yeah, so AM before was a typical, I guess, downloadable software where there was one or two releases per year. I don't know exactly, but it was one or two. And then what we switched to on the SaaS or on the cloud service part is we, some parts of the system are continuously being deployed. So there's no action of deploying something. It's just you just commit things to Git and they get deployed. And this is all the GitOps model. Some other parts are still on a monthly cadence or so, just because there's dependencies on the customer side where obviously we don't want to change APIs or things that customers need to be aware of. So those kind of still have a more of a schedule. But most of the things that run on the cluster are just multiple times per day being deployed. Wow, that's so modern. I love it. But yeah, you've talked about the extensibility, right? Or how your clients are extending. So is that the bit that you have to be careful with? Like not to deploy breaking changes to those extendabilities, that extensions, sorry, that your clients have put in place? Yeah, there's a lot of developers that build on AM and have expertise. So this is something I wasn't aware before that when I joined, there's a lot of people writing extensions. So we have to keep this layer of compatibility with our layer of APIs 
and make sure that we are not breaking something of these extensions. The other particular case is that we are running this customer code in our systems. So we are taking these extensions, packaging them up as part of AM, and then running this. So this also has challenges of sometimes this code is running on the same JVM, so it's not clear what the API is in some cases, because you may have access to a bunch of classes on Java. Maybe a simple change somewhere is having this side effect that is breaking somebody. There's some tests happening for each customer that before upgrading them on, on the Java application part, this test run and we verify if is this is this a problem with these specific customers. And this is before before getting the release out. Uh, we check is this a problem with this specific customers? Is it a widespread problem? So it's in the core or what's happening. We're also taking some matters further, trying to do more progressive delivery. I was advocating for progressive delivery a long time. And now we are working on Using Argo rollouts, another open source project that is very popular, trying to make it even safer for us to deploy changes. But wait, what you defined before as GitOps releases, in a way you didn't say so, I'm paraphrasing you, but this multiple updates and rollouts and deployments per day, this to me, and if especially if you use Canary or Blue Green or just, you know, subsets of users that test out a specific feature or a specific improvement or whatever, and then depending on the results of the experiment, then roll it out or not. That sounds to me like uh, progressive delivery. What did you have in mind to say now that you wanted to propose it? I mean, it seems to me from what you say that you were already doing it. Yeah, no, we definitely were rolling out changes in different what we call groups. So internal customers first and, you know, typical scenarios where you don't want to do a big bang across everybody. We want to do it even more granular, oh, okay. even more specific. Some of the features that Argo rollouts provide, the interesting one that I'm, I'm more fond of is automatic rollbacks. So where you deploy something, it will automatically check and you can define, I don't know, you could say, oh, the number of 500 errors has gone up, just roll it back. You define success, and if the criteria for success is not met, boom, it goes back to the previous state. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. And it's all automated. You don't have to do anything manual. And I guess you need to work with product a lot there, right? To define what success C is, especially for, for new features, yeah. right? If it's performance and other things, I think for engineers, it's mostly clear. It's like, well, we want to, you know, lag, delays here, get rid of them. But if it's a new feature, then what success looks like is something that needs to be arbitrarily agreed with product, right? Yeah, we have multiple teams working on the product. We have metrics, we have alerts, we have the dashboards, and we have people on call across the whole org. So that's already being kind of defined. What is a problem? How can we respond quickly to it? This is taking it a step further in order to, one, automate it in a way that, okay, there's a problem. Let's automatically roll it back. Or to let's start doing things like traffic switching or 
let's start sending some traffic to the new version, not to the old version. There's a bunch of possibilities there. How did the, I'm going to call it team topology, right? It's just a reference to a fantastic book that came out, I think, three years ago that everyone, I think, should read if mm-hmm. you're interested in modern, you know, software delivery and the structure of teams that powers yeah. that. How did that change since you joined four years ago, Adobe? Has it changed? And what new teams have come to play? You've mentioned the platform team. Maybe it was not new. But what has changed in the last few years in terms only of team structure and coordination? And why do the relationships exist between teams? Yeah, so in a big corporation, there's always going to be dependencies across teams. And platform team, it's doing more and more, I think, more... There's always, in the last years, two years probably, platform teams have also become very popular. And there's this boom on the platform team side. And and I agree with a lot of the tenants there where, you know, not everybody in the organization needs to know how to deploy something, needs to know how to run something in production. How long it takes for me, and, and this is a key metric, how long it takes for a new person that joins the company to be able to deploy something to production. That's for me. It's Do you key. remember how long it took to you to deploy something to production when you joined? Yeah, I don't know exactly because we were not GA back then. But I think it, for me, it took a while to grasp how big the organization was and how big the product was and so on. I'm happy to say that we have people recently joining where they are deploying to production things in... I don't know, less than a month. Obviously, that could be improved, but probably in, in the range of two weeks. It depends on... There's a lot of onboarding things that yeah, need to exactly. be done. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not sure I want to reduce <laughs> that time too much because, you know, it's. I think there's a minimum onboarding time to just get... A, regardless of, how, of your seniority, like if you've got 20 years of experience, you probably are, you know, get familiar with the code base and the coding guidelines and the production guidelines and everything fairly easy but i wouldn't want anyone to be releasing to production anything you know week one or week two to be honest yeah i guess it depends if you have the guardrails in place or not and if you're pushing something if there's gonna get a pull request review and then somebody if you i mean some tests are running and everything looks fine then go ahead that's no problem with it have those guardrails changed throughout time? Is it is it now simpler to deploy in a new feature, an update to AEM than it was when you joined? Yeah, it is. Part of this kind of progressive delivery, we we in kind of soonish, I think, we realized that we cannot make these GitOps changes everywhere at once across all the clusters, all the namespace, like thousands, tens of thousands of namespaces. So on our GitOps tooling, we set a way that where you could target some specific environments, not just stage and production, but also say, oh, I want this to go to 1% of our namespaces or two or whatever number. So now we have this capability. It's a matter of making it easier for people to do it. It's one of the things that we didn't get there yet. But yeah, the capability is there. So when you joined, what was one of your, say, immediate, what did you think was going to become a problem and eventually did not become a problem? It's like when you joined, it's like, oh, I know that these, let's call cloud migration projects usually 
face this problem. But then it turned out that this didn't happen there. What was initially a problem that didn't turn out to be? Did you run into anything like this? Was it smoother than you planned for? Yes, I think, I guess I was not, or I was a bit skeptic or a bit worried about if people would still, or customers would see that as a problem, moving to the cloud, is that's a typical case, right? Moving to the cloud is sometimes it's seen as this, I don't want to do mm. it, or why, why would I do it, or so on. But that went pretty well. There was a huge wood response there. The scale of clusters or how quickly are we growing, that was also, you know, worrisome at some points. Like, well, we need to grow, grow, grow. Are we going to hit problems? And obviously we did hit some problems, but overall was not such a big deal. And things that I thought would be easier than they were, because there's a product built mostly in Java. Well, or actually the product that was on-prem was Java and OSGI and all these components. There's a lot of people that have the Java knowledge, but they don't have the Kubernetes or more operational knowledge. And with the promise that Java can run anywhere, you know, you would expect things to go smoother. But then you have to deal with memory constraints and CPU problems and CPU throttling and so on. Things that Java has improved, has improved in the, in the last years, but also the five years ago, it was still the defaults in Java and the JVM were not good for containerized Java workloads. So that was also a challenge on figuring out why is this failing? Why am my process getting killed? Why am running out of memory? Why my process is not responding? All that stuff. Do you see ARM architectures as the best ones out there for AEM specifically, or in general for Java applications running in the cloud? Yeah, ARM has a lot of advantages. One is the cost, and the second is the performance. So you have better performance for less cost. If you have to re-architect your application to run on ARM, then yeah, okay. This is a project that you have to balance how much you're going to get out of it, how much you need to put in. To get there. For Java, this is easier than anywhere else, I think, because you just change your Docker image, you pull a Docker image that is built for ARM, and hopefully your containers are just going to run fine. The JVM, that's all the abstraction for you. The Java virtual machine, so that's easy. It's just a matter of being able to rebuild everything for ARM. And not just ARM, because one of the problems with ARM today is availability. So for the services that we are switching to ARM, we are not just switching them to ARM. We are building them in a multi-architecture container image. So we need them to run on ARM and Intel for the time being, because there's regions that don't have ARM availability. There's some regions that have just a bit of it. And how do you go about trusting the provider of the image? Like, do you just go to, I presume you don't do this, but what is the sort of like vetting process that one says, okay, I need to deploy my Java application in a container that runs on ARM. So what do I just do? Go to Docker Hub and see if I can find such thing? Or how do you go about those things? 
that's one way. I mean, there's official images on Docker Hub that are built by Docker Inc. That's one possibility. We also have internal images at Adobe that this, this platform team builds for everybody. And they have, so for popular languages, you have base images. So yeah, you have both options there. Okay. Oh, so the platform team also builds images. Fantastic. Wow. Yeah, they do a lot of things. Okay. So what is the... And they do them well. <laughs> what is the state <laughs> of the project then? And what is the next step for AEM running in the cloud? You've already hinted a few things, but I wanted to conclude this interview with what people, you know, given a bit of a sneak peek of where things are going internally over there. Yeah, from the technology point, more progressive delivery, we are trying to improve this and automate more, always automate more and more. Dealing with the scale, how can we run in, instead of 40 clusters, how can we run in 400 clusters? Things like that is what we, or I am working on most of the time. Obviously, cost implications, that's a big one. And the new services... Taking what new things the cloud provider is giving us, how can those fit or what things those the new features allow us to provide those some new features to customers without having to write them ourselves. Yeah, and overall is also some crazy ideas of, okay, what if we take this? I don't know. What if we run this on the edge? What if we run this thing and allow this to scale down to zero? All sorts of new ideas that can fit. I'm wondering, I'm not asking about AEMs or any of Adobe's portfolios roadmap or you know future announcements, but I'm wondering, are you getting requests to support future Gen AI features at AEM? I mean, I guess I'll turn the question around and conclude the interview with this one. Is in the hypothetic case that AEM implements in the near future Gen AI features? Would that require important changes to what you just described, to the architecture, to the way you deploy, to the way you provision? Would you foresee any strong changes or is what you just described resilient and flexible enough to at least accommodate the beginning of that, say, Gen AI next generation for AEM? I think there's two parts. One is how can customers use Gen AI? with our products that's obviously uh, is everywhere now and everybody's talking about it and then there's how jnai is helping or internally how do we use jnai oh, okay. or in development to i don't know move faster provide new features faster and better i mean you have examples out there like github copilot has been around now for a while so i think that there's these two dimensions to it and probably in any, any technology shop, you're going to see both of those, right? Customers demanding some Gen AI feature, whatever. Mm. And on the other hand is, even if my product is not a candidate to use Gen AI, how can I use Gen AI to just, as an engineer, how can I use Gen AI to move faster, not break so many things, and provide the value. And so far, have you been able to use Copilot or any other Gen AI for software delivery, for software development product out there successfully? Because let's say, yeah, 
These vendors claim that junior developers will be able to onboard projects and potentially release to production, like we said before, earlier or sooner than they used to do before these things existed. But what about a experienced developer like you? Have you been able to leverage any value from these? You don't need to mention any particular product or you know any particular real use case. Have you been fiddling around and do you see any value in it so far, as is now? Yeah, definitely, definitely. There's definitely value. There has been value for over a year or two now already. I think there's one is the use case of not going to Stack Overflow and back, right? This saves you the round trip of having to go and search for something where you can just see it on your editor or something like that. And on the other hand, it's... By the way, I, it's definitely helpful with all. The- I should say because it's relevant to this conversation. There is a interview in this same podcast by my colleague Sean, I believe, Faulkner, with the Stack Overflow team that have reacted to this and provided features, or they are planning to release products that embed the experience of looking up questions and answers in Stack Overflow, but instead of doing so in their own website, embedded in the ID and being able to retrieve it through a chat functionality, code completion-like thing. I think it's in a very experimental phase if it's even being released. But anyone interested in Overflow AI, I think that's the name of the portfolio they plan to release. Please go ahead and listen to that interview. But as you say, one of the goals they have in mind is that, hey, developers do see a strong context switch in going to Stack Overflow because it's not in your ID. And that's where you get what you are focused on, concentrate on. So they see the value in taking Stack Overflow's knowledge base into the, let's say, deep work experience. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, that's that's great. I mean, I think AI is a fundamental shift on how people are, engineers are going to work. And Stack Overflow is a clear example of how they need to adapt to it. To what you said, I think there was years ago, there was already a project that whenever you get an exception in Java, it would go to Stack Overflow and paste a link to the most relevant result on the stack trace. So that was already, hey, let me help you. So you don't have to search. You just, here, this is a stack trace. This is the link (laughs) with the most plausible answer. So that was like early AI sort of thing. And this was this was years ago, and it was great. I mean, it was funny, but it was also good. For me, the other point where it's very useful is for boilerplate. It's amazing how much boilerplate you have to do it on your day-to-day basis. And AI is there helping you. I mean, that's one of the main repeatable content generation that is widely spread everywhere. Now, the question, I guess that we need to ask ourselves is why do we need this boilerplate in the first place, right? Is if I'm going to have to just go and have AI fill in this for me, what's the point? That is true. That, I think that's the reason why frameworks yeah. exist, right, in a way, to cover that to a certain extent. Another thing that developers, senior developers like you say that is valuable from Gen AI is that it allows them to explore, sort of like use Gen AI as a soundboard before they actually even prototype anything. So rapid prototyping, but even pre-prototyping. But yeah, 
still in its early stages. Let's see how that goes. Anyway, this conversation was not about Gen AI. We could talk about everything is going to be about exactly. AI, but I don't so. want. I don't want. I wanted to focus on <laughs> on your experience taking AEM to the cloud. And by the way, you gave a talk at Linux Foundation's Open Source Summit Europe 2023 in Bilbao, Spain, which I will link in the show notes for anyone wanting to deep dive into the process. We just touched up on the surface of this. And yeah, Carlos, thanks for being with us and looking forward to speaking to you again. Thank you very much for having me. 